0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In the latest episode in our monthly series marking the centenary of the BBC, media historian David Hendy and Matt Elton have reached the 1960s, when the BBC was forced to adapt quickly to keep up with the rapid changes transforming British society.
3: So David, is it fair to say that as we pick up this story at the start of the 1960s, the BBC was poised awkwardly between its past and its future?
1: Yes, I think that idea of it being poised between past and future really neatly sums up where the BBC is at the start of the 60s. The, the writer E.M. Forster said something interesting about broadcasting. He was actually talking about the third programme, but I think it it stands in a way for the BBC more broadly. He, he said it... it it has two faces, one that faces the past and one that faces the future. And also, to put it slightly differently, a face that reflects and a face that explores. And I think that really captures where we are with the BBC at the start of the 1960s. Just take the issue of of multiculturalism, for instance. We've got... Uh, the black and white minstrels, which started in 1958, uh, even then a kind of troubling kind of program genre, with with dancers blacked up, you know, drawing on that minstrel tradition. And and by 1962, there were people inside the BBC already warning program makers that this was an, a, an offensive program you've got in uh you've also just finished recently is caribbean voices which was a, a long-running a radio series broadcast to the west indies which which featured many many rising talents writers and poets from the caribbean and, and you'd had Uh, dramas on TV like Man from the Sun in 1956, which offered a sympathetic portrayal of the experience of immigrants from the Caribbean. So in terms of multiculturalism, you've got a kind of a mixed balance sheet there. Think about ITV and competition. So ITV had come along in 1955. By 1960, the BBC has responded to ITV, it's, it's work in progress. ITV offered a kind of a faster-paced, brasher, less formal, less deferential approach to news, for instance. And the BBC was was changing. It was featuring its newsreaders on TV in vision, not just their, their voices. Uh, reporters were, were being less deferential. The presentation of BBC television was tightening up and becoming slicker in a way. And then, of course, there's the turnover of staff, which is which is really important. You've got a, a generation of program makers who are reaching retirement, leaving the BBC, and you've got a new generation, university educated young men and women uh, who are less deferential, more questioning, and they're kind of looking at a kind of changing society. They see a kind of society which is which is changing. Uh, more broadly, and those changes are being played out and fought over in broadcasting. So, so people who want society to become more progressive and more permissive in art and culture and cinema and, and the portrayal of sex and the use of language and so on are, are kind of pushing into the BBC and trying to kind of shake up what broadcasting, this kind of traditional domestic medium can do. You've mentioned a few factors there,
3: external pressure from young people, internal pressure from young people, commercial pressure. Was there a key factor among those that was particularly important or which the BBC felt particularly sensitive about? Or was this more a case of a confluence of
1: factors all happening at the same time? I mean, I think it is really a, a confluence, but age, the sort of, if you like, the generational kind of conflict which seems to be emerging, perhaps underpins uh, a lot of them. So, so yes, in terms of kind of youth, you've got a kind of a, a flowering of a teenage culture for which, you know, music is quite central. And and although the BBC has right from the beginning been broadcasting music, including popular music, dance music, it's clear that in the early 1960s, it's not keeping up with musical taste. Musical taste is is accelerating. It's changing. Pop culture means there's always something new every week, every month. And the BBC is just not able to to capture that. Uh, in, in terms of competition, yes, you've got an other television services. You've got ITV and, and the BBC has to respond to that. Um, but actually, when you read accounts of programme makers who were in the BBC in the late 50s and the early 60s, one of the phrases that, that leapt out at me was who Weldon, who said, we were in competition with ourselves. So to some extent, we have to remember that there is an organic process here that that is within the BBC, that not just that turnover of staff, but the same staff who see their job as sensing the changes in society and trying to capture what is happening at any given moment. Two other factors that I think are really important that perhaps we haven't touched on yet. One is there's a new director general. Hugh Carlton Green is director general in 1960 at the very start of the decades. Now, Hugh Carlton Green has been around in the BBC since the Second World War. He he came in uh, as uh, a director of the German service during wartime and was uh, involved rising up the ranks through news and current affairs and external broadcasting through the 1950s. And he becomes director general. And uh, in many ways, he's as dominating and influential a figure on the BBC in the 1960s, as Reith was in the 20s and the early 30s. He's someone who sends out a message to his staff, which is, let's throw open the windows, let's blow away what he called the sort of ivory tower stuffiness, and let's actually, you know, be ahead of public taste, not always behind it. And at the same time, and this is the final crucial factor, I think, the BBC is actually well resourced at this point. It's got plenty of TV licence fee income coming in. It's got a new television centre which opens. It's sort of feeling confident and it's feeling as if it's got the resources and the firepower to, to make good and exciting programmes. It would be great to talk through some of those programmes, some of the ways in which this this wind
3: of change, if you like, actually impacted on particular genres, I suppose. I mean, what were some of the key innovations in uh, terms of satire and in terms of drama, which were two of the big things
1: that experienced change, I think? Well, you mentioned satire, and I suppose the preeminent example of that would be That Was The Week That Was, which launches in November 1962. It actually only runs for sort of two se- seasons. So, so you know, by the end of 1963, it's it's gone. So it has this sort of brief, extraordinary life that rides the wave of the early 60s satire boom. And what's interesting about it from a BBC point of view is that it's the BBC doing it. You know, uh, old-fashioned auntie, as it were, is part of the satire boom. And it's also that it was a kind of blend of news and satire. It wasn't actually the the light entertainment department that made it. It was kind of news and and current affairs people. And this mixing of news and entertainment was was pretty new territory for the BBC. And and the style of the programme as well. It was was clearly anti-establishment. Not necessarily progressive, but it was anti-establishment. And it seemed to be something that that was by young people for young people. A late Saturday night show. David Frost was in his early 20s as the main presenter. You have Bernard Levin offering acerbic interviews and commentary, Millicent Martin singing the theme song. And the studio setup is kind of cluttered and raw and chaotic. So, you know, when you're watching this show, you see the cameras moving around, you see the kind of lighting rig, you see the audience and so on. And and it sort of captures this idea that it didn't want to be smooth. It was challenging the whole idea of of artifice so it wasn't just about content it was the kind of the whole style of that was the week that was that that, that offered something new you mentioned drama um, and i suppose again the preeminent example of that would be the wednesday play which later turns into play for today when it moves from wednesday uh, from 1964 you've got the wednesday play which draws on a wide range of, of dramatists and styles, but perhaps becomes most famous for the kind of gritty realism tradition that you can see in other drama series like Z Cars. That was something that was around and very influential. And the, Wednesday, the classic Wednesday plays, I suppose, would be uh, Up the Junction in 1965 and Kathy Come Home in 1966, both directed by by Ken Loach, who... When he talks about those those programs he, he he makes clear that he was deliberately setting out to kind of intervene on social issues in, in the case of those two dramas about abortion and about homelessness. so this was politically pointed drama now not every Wednesday play or play for today was was explicitly political as that as I say, it kind of offered a, a, a range of styles, but I think that that captures the kind of the part of the new tone and the new feel. The really important thing to remember is there's always plenty of traditional stuff still around and plenty of kind of, as it were, traditional Rethian uplift. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the decade, 1969, you've got Kenneth Clark presenting civilization, a kind of, uh, in a way, kind of the, the grand man's uh, vision, a patrician vision of the history of Western art. I mean, a fantastic series, but deeply traditional in in many ways. And that even even some of those shows that we associate with the kind of the new pop culture, like *Jukebox Jury*. Are actually kind of somehow very BBC. I mean, you know, David Jacobs, the presenter, and this avuncular figure, and and a program that really was designed very much for the sort of the family audience rather than just uh the teenager. So, you know, throughout the 60s, in a sense, we've got programs that are emblematic, not just of the kind of the new style, but of a BBC that's that's a mix a jumble of the new and the old
3: this is really interesting this idea of it being a jumble of the BBC existing somewhere on a continuum between its old traditions and these new forms new ways of doing things how hard was it for the BBC and the people that were there to judge to what extent things could be pushed in these types of programs and what sort of initial response were
1: these new innovations
3: met with I suppose
1: I suppose if you peer inside the BBC in the 1960s and you you do that by, I guess looking at the records of things like the weekly programme review board and all these editorial discussions what you see is a BBC which is spending a, an almost infinite amount of time discussing these things and grappling with these things uh, and of course there are no obvious answers. So you've got a you've got a director general in Hugh Carleton Green who says this he goes around and and says to his senior staff if you don't upset part of your audience most of the time you're not doing your job properly now that's a kind of that's a, a that's a real encouragement to take risks right but then you've also got this this old continuing Retheian idea that yes it's okay to to lead to be ahead of public taste but if you're too far ahead of public taste you're going to leave the public behind so so there's a there's always a, a measurement of public taste. And if you if you look at the minutes of these weekly programme review boards where all the senior programme makers and heads of departments gather every week and chew over the programmes of the week and the issues that arise, they use their professional instincts, but they also look at what the newspapers are saying. They look at the audience research. They look at the letters and the phone calls they've received. And they blend all of these factors Us in to try and reach a judgment. But it's hard. There was one person at a a weekly programme review board who said trying to draw the line in terms of public taste was like trying to draw a line in mist. And so, you know, just take the example of language. There were certain words that the BBC knew it either couldn't broadcast because they were too strong or if they were to be included, let's say, in a kind of difficult, controversial drama, then they were referable words. In other words, you had to refer to your line manager and it might eventually go right up to the director general. Well, that's fine for the most extreme words. But what about bloody or damn and words like that that are kind of uh, demotic words in common speech. And if you've got dramatists who want to reflect the world as it is, it's going to have to use words like that. Do you refer those? Do you exclude them? If you exclude them, won't the BBC sound a little bit prissy and old-fashioned? Uh, if you include too many of them, will it just offend the audience so much that the, the audience is lost? So there's no straightforward answer to this. And the BBC is aware that while it's got dramatists and writers and young programme makers pushing in one direction, it's also got, outside of the BBC, people like Mary Whitehouse, most famously, who is determined to take a stand and actually say, whatever you, the BBC, think you're doing, there is a silent majority, as she would refer to it, uh, who believe that actually there's too much kitchen sink drama and not enough of the kind of cosy sitting room, if you like. So so the, the BBC is just, I'm not sure if the BBC finds an answer to, to all this, but it's constantly aware of this issue and trying to kind of navigate some way through it. Did the launch of BBC2 in 1964 give the BBC new
3: opportunities and I suppose how did it view this new channel? I
1: suppose in 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 many ways BBC television having a second channel was rather like the creation of the third programme in 1946 and what that did for radio in terms of creating a space where a few risks could be taken, without necessarily undermining the effort of the main channel, what became BBC One, whose job it was really to compete with ITV in terms of kind of the ratings battle, which was pretty ferocious for for much of the, the 1960s. So BBC Two was this blank slate, if you like. That, that could create space for experimentation, for trying new formats. And he wasn't the first controller of BBC Two, but that he was the, the controller for much of this period. David Attenborough really sort of invented BBC Two very much in his own image as a kind of Renaissance man. In other words, uh, he wanted to kind of widen the range of subjects which could be tackled archaeology had that been done on television well let's have a go anthropology uh, let's do that sport that's a bit tricky because existing channels have have rights over certain uh, sporting events and we don't want to undermine them so what are we left with Mm, not very much what about floodlit rugby what about snooker what about putting snooker on television and the range uh, on BBC2 becomes kind of Fantastically varied, even more varied than perhaps on Radio One. You've got, you know, Kenneth Clark's civilization at, at one extreme, and then kind of modern pop shows at the other extreme and all and snooker in the middle. So, so BBC Two kind of provides this sort of new playground for invention, if you like, in in television, where a few risks and beats can be taken. But what also happens is that, you know, David Attenborough being a good BBC man has conversations with his colleagues who are running BBC One and, and it's a coordinated effort. So it's all part of one BBC. And, you know, the idea is that there would be a kind of useful contrast between the two at, at given times and they coordinated in terms of uh, uh, programme junctions and, and so on. And of course, the arrival of BBC Two, in a sense, really helps the BBC in the, in the ratings war. You know, they were equally poised, one BBC television channel and ITV, and now the BBC has two channels and ITV just one. So, so it really helps, again, boosts the BBC, gives it confidence. It's a kind of expanding, confident uh, organisation at this stage. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So the government takes action to close down the pirates, but it realises there has to be some sort of legal alternative. And it's the BBC that is lined up to provide this legal alternative. And it emerges in September 1967 in the form of Radio One. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show
2: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra.
1: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
3: Is it right to say that the the third channel had become available as an idea and then the government decided to give it to the BBC rather than ITV? Is, Is that how that worked?
1: Yes, there was, a, there was a, a government inquiry, the Pilkington uh, Committee, which sat and a third channel was up for grabs. It was by no means certain uh, whether that would go to the commercial sector or go to the BBC. Although there were quite a few people on the Pilkington Committee, like Richard Hoggart, for instance, who were kind of, as it were, more sympathetic to the BBC than to commercial broadcasting. And uh, Hugh Carlton, Green actually mobilised an extraordinarily kind of clever effort. I mean, he'd been involved in some sort of, you know, what we might call psyops operation after the war. And um he knew how to kind of run a campaign and was very, very clever about kind of steering the Pilkington committee towards a, a, a um the right conclusion which was to award this channel to the bbc so yeah the bbc were kind of were were, were pretty kind of clever uh, about managing this so but the the committee in a sense was was veering that way anyway
3: You mentioned Radio 1 there. So we should move to radio. What were the BBC's radio offerings in the first half of the decade? And did they experience these similar sort of social
1: pressures to change as the TV channels did? One of the great BBC radio figures who joined in the 1930s and actually retired, left at the end of the 60s, was Geoffrey Brideson, who made some wonderful documentaries. And he described BBC radio at the end of the 50s and the early 60s as, quotes, in the doldrums. And, uh, I mean, his reason for saying that was partly... That it was still struggling to find an identity and a purpose with the rise of television. I mean, you know, more and more people were watching television, especially in the evening, when which had been kind of one of radio's traditional peak times. So, radio was having to adjust to being a kind of daytime medium. It was having to adjust to being a bit of a background medium. People didn't really any longer kind of sit down and sort of pay attention to the radio like they did to the television set. Radio was on on in the kitchen or sometimes the bedroom, and increasingly later it would be on in the car. So was radio doing the right thing? Were kind of elaborate set piece dramas and features and documentaries the right sort of thing? Or should radio reinvent itself as a so-called secondary background medium you know it it should be uh, everything should be sort of short and uh, manageable and digestible in short chunks you know three minutes of this and three minutes of that should radio stations be more predictable so that people knew what they were getting instead of a kind of rich mix on each channel should people know well if I tune into that I'll get music and if I tune into that I'll get speech or news and 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 so on So all these debates were happening, but beneath the surface, there was a there was constant change and evolution. Radio was becoming more informal in the early 60s. You've got, again, new people coming into the domestic radio services, people like Jerry Mansell, for instance, who'd come from the World Service and takes over the home program and is keen on more informality less scriptedness. He he wanted kind of something that was a bit sparkier and more more spontaneous. With portable recordings and magnetic tape becoming kind of cheaper and more available, you've got more actuality, you know, r- recording spontaneously interviews rather than having to script things in the studio. So all of these, these changes are, are, are taking place. The biggest challenge in a way, for BBC Radio in the early 60s was over music and needle time. And, and and the simple reality the BBC came up against was that even if it wanted to broadcast more pop music, it wasn't able to. It was restricted to something like 30 hours total of needle time in other words the, the the amount of recorded music on gramophone records it could play in order to kind of honor agreements with the musicians unions and performing rights society and 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 publishers and so on Across all channels, across all its radio channels, thirty hours. So it was really difficult. It had a few pop music programs, you know, Brian Matthews was trying to do his thing on a Saturday morning and so on, but but really there wasn't the capacity to to reflect those those cultural changes that we that we talked about, that kind of the, the kind of youth quake in, in musical taste.
3: And then what was the what was the, the key factor that led the BBC to think, right, well, we do need to have a pop music? station in our offering
1: well uh, of course it's the radio pirates the pirates uh, you know, we they they flourish in the mid-1960s so in Ra- easter 1964 is when radio caroline suddenly pops up uh, on a kind of ship sailing around the british coast and within a short period you've got several pirate radio stations existing on on, beyond the reach of kind of legislative authority. So they're not having to pay their dues to musical performers or publishers. They can play as much pop music as they want to. And they have this amazing buccaneering spirit and they have young presenters who are appealing to young listeners and millions of people are tuning in because the BBC is not offering anything for them. And they're an extraordinary success, but they are illegal. And they are getting the UK authorities into trouble with the kind of in in terms of its international obligations about wavelengths and security and and payments and so on. So the government takes action to close down the pirates, but it realises there has to be some sort of legal alternative. And it's the BBC that is lined up to provide this legal alternative. And it emerges in September 1967, in the form of Radio 1. Now, Radio 1 is a BBC pop radio channel. It's a, it's a huge innovation, but of course, it's part of a of a more general shake-up of, of radio, because up until this point, we've got this pyramid of three services. We've got the light programme, the home service, and the third. And overnight... They disappear and they're relaunched as Radio 1, Radio 2, which really is the old light programme, Radio 3, which is the old third programme, and Radio 4, which is the old home service. And cultural commentators, in a way, are are, are agog at this because the home service was regarded very much as the kind of the, the bedrock of the Reithian BBC. And yet here it was, number four. It seemed to be demoted in some way. Then Radio 1 the number one position was this new upstart pop station. And, uh, you know, as, as one of the commentaries in the press put it, it, this was or appeared to be auntie's first freak out. <laughs> um, so, so it was a kind of, it was a, a, a seminal moment, I think, in terms of radio in this launch of a, of a dedicated pop station.
3: Who were some of the key uh, figures and I suppose some of the key programmes in this new Radio 1, this new channel? Well,
1: before we talk about the presenters, I think it's worth just flagging the the, the man behind it all in a sense, the controller, who was Robin Scott, who rather like Hugh Carton Green was a kind of figure who'd been at the BBC for a long time. Robin Scott, the white tornado, as he was called, because of his kind of uh, shock of white hair. Was uh, someone who worked in the French service, uh, going back to the to the wartime. So he wasn't a kind of he wasn't a young Turk. <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't part of the youth quake, as it were. But he knew that his job was to recruit the kind of presenters who would reflect some of that buccaneering spirit and excitement of the pirates. So it was Robin Scott who set about, if you like, organising some he- some key bits of headhunting as the pirates were shut down. Perhaps the most important figure, first of all, was Tony Blackburn, who was the breakfast show presenter on the new Radio One. and he'd been at Radio London and was headhunted from from that. And I mean, in many ways, he was typical of the daytime, Uh, Radio One disc jockey. He was kind of breezy. He was chatty. He was a little bit flirtatious as well. There was this, there was this notion that the presenters who were all at this stage. Men were sort of husband substitutes for for the the quotes the housewife audience. Um, So there was a lot lot of sort of stereotypical kind of uh, thinking here. But he was he was a consummate professional in terms of you know managing the studio and playing the records and so on. And he loved it. You know he loved the jingles. He loved the chat. Uh, And a perfect figure for the breakfast show in these early days there was a a saying that eventually emerged at radio 1 which was that it was this it was ratings by day reputation by night and so the idea of the daytime show was to be as popular and accessible and as bright and breezy as 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 possible you don't you don't need to be passionate or particularly interested in the music you just need to kind of share it with the audience but at nighttime and at weekends you've got more specialist presenters who are passionate fans about particular kinds of music. And I suppose the most emblematic figure there is John Peel, who joins again from Radio London, where he'd been briefly presenting a cult programme called Perfumed Garden, which was a kind of eclectic collection of all sorts of kind of music at the margins of, of, of rock. And John Peel had this sort of hippie-ish sort of cult style, ready-made, off-the-shelf for Radio 1. He'd kind of developed it at the Perfin Garden, but he'd also spent a few years in the States Uh, doing late night shifts on local radio stations, buying lots of records, immersing himself in the music scene. So he was incredibly knowledgeable about music. And he saw his job actually in very, very wreathian ways. He might not necessarily have talked about wreath, but he described his task as, you know, making people aware of music that they might not otherwise have heard. It's a classic Rethian ambition, and I suppose a third person who is, who, who is definitely worth mentioning is Annie Nightingale. Um, now she's not there at the beginning. In fact, she tries to join Radio One. She's a she's a, um, a experienced music journalist, exactly the kind of person who you'd imagine Radio One would want, but she's in a sense, a very clear victim of the kind of sexism in terms of Radio 1's recruitment policy, this idea that that presenters needed to be men because they were husband substitutes. But in 1970, I think the BBC (laughs) realises that it can't sustain this position. And so she joins Radio 1 and is very much in that same tradition of John Peel, of being a music enthusiast, who, who who sort of shares her passion uh, and selects music carefully. She's not just putting on the music that she's been told to play. She's involved in that selection process. And so right from the beginning, you've got a Radio 1 which has this sort of central uh, sort of flavour of kind of you know, cheesy, poptastic music, as it were, but also has this sort of interesting activity at the margins, which is much more experimental and radical and exploratory.
3: Writing at the end of the 50s, some commentators wondered whether broadcasting might help create a common culture in Britain. As we uh, reached the end of the 60s, the start of the 70s, had that come to pass?
1: I don't think it had. I mean, you know, it was someone like Richard Hoggart, for instance, really hoped and believed that broadcasting had that ability to to forge a common culture. But there's another cultural commentator who's important at this stage, Raymond Williams, who famously says culture is ordinary. It's part of everyday life. And the reality was that everyday life showed that tastes in a way were diverging and that sort of class. Distinctions were just as embedded as they ever had been, and that new distinctions, especially that that one between age range, you know, the generational distinctions, were becoming stronger. So I think that the difficulty for the BBC is that actually, you know, culture, as it were, is sort of fragmenting, and and diversifying, and. The BBC's response, in a way, is is the only one it could make, which is not to force everything into a kind of middle brow that might be the average of all of these cultures, but to kind of embrace and reflect this uh, this fragmentation, this diversity. So, you know, it doesn't it doesn't go high brow, it doesn't go low brow, it doesn't go middle brow. It kind of goes wide brow in a way, and and widens the range. So, yes, you've got top of the pops and you've got Kenneth Clark's Civilization, and all sorts of things like that that stretch the range. And underpinning that, I suppose, is an acceptance that not everything will be liked by everyone and that the kind of programmes that need to be made do not need to please everyone. Uh, and, And that's where I think we can see the importance of the key change in the BBC in the 1960s under Hugh Carton Green and through that generational change, which is that progressive ideas, if you like, had percolated through the system. It wasn't a kind of total revolution. You've still got the traditional alongside the news, but you've got this key idea which has taken root that broadcasting television, radio, doesn't any longer have to kind of think that everything that goes on air has to be suitable for everyone. And that, I think, is a really important distinction between the BBC at the end of the decade and the BBC at the beginning of the decade.
0: That was David Hendy. You can read more from David
1: in every issue
0: of BBC History magazine. And his book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now, published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.